Thanks, man. All right, we're excited. Thank you, Lucas. We're excited to be starting a new series. This is kind of a continuation. This is like a big trilogy. This is the third part of 1 Corinthians. So uh, we're calling this series, What's Wrong with the Church? And we're finishing up the last several chapters of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapters 11 through 16. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to 1 Corinthians. We should be close to page 958 in the Black Bibles. If you don't have uh, your own Bible, we would love for you to take one of those Black Bibles. We'd love for you to have your own Bible that you can read at home and, and get you into that habit with us. As we consider the question, what's wrong with the church? It's really helpful looking at 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians, probably more than any other letter in the New Testament, is a church where they've got Jesus, they've got the Bible, but they need to be corrected on multiple issues. And so in that way, it's a great parallel to the modern church. We know Jesus. Uh, We're seeking to obey his word, but we often need to be called back to careful faithfulness to who he is, to trusting him, to not putting ourselves first, but putting Jesus first. And so just week after week, we've seen these gentle gospel-centered corrections throughout 1 Corinthians, and it's helpful for us to understand, okay, how can we get ourselves back on track as well. All of us need to continue to return to Jesus, to continue to turn to him. This week, the first chapter, uh, we're starting with a bang. It's probably, I don't think I'm even going to say probably. I'm just going to say this is the toughest text in the New Testament. You know, preachers love to say that like every other week, right? But really, y'all, this is a tough text. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're calling it Gender is a Gift. Gender is a Gift. The temptation for us as modern people is to either blur or reject gender. Either blur that line or reject it altogether. I'm going to give you a little illustration to start off with. How many of you ever gotten a gift that you did not appreciate as a child? That ever happened to you? Let me, let me lay out, thank you for your honesty. Let me lay out one that happened several times to me in my poor traumatized life as a child. Many times as a kid on Christmas morning, I'd open up a box, I'd pull off the Christmas wrapping, and there I would find a wool sweater. And let me tell you, I did not appreciate that one bit as a child. Uh, Number one, wool is itchy, right? And I was a little kid, and I liked soft things. I didn't want no itchy wool. Number two, I lived here, right? (laughs) And it is cold today, right? Granted, we've had kind of a real winter the last two winters, but you know what that means? We're not going to have a real winter for like five more years, because it just generally does not get that cold here. So a wool sweater just did not make sense to me as a gift as a child. It was a gift that I did not appreciate, I did not enjoy. Now, fast forward many years. As a young family, we moved to St. Louis, where I studied in seminary. St. Louis has real winters every year, and that's when I discovered wool is actually warmer than cotton. Did y'all know this? If you live in Texas, you may not even know this. Wool legitimately is way warmer than cotton, and wool is fantastic. So much so that now, like as an adult, I actually like wool. I asked my wife for a wool sweater this Christmas, and she gave me a wool sweater, and it's fantastic, and it keeps me warm in my old age with this terrible winter we're having. Um, So anyway, that's just a picture of something that seems like it's a no-good gift. It seems like something that you don't want and you don't appreciate, and that's often where we are with gender but we can come to different times in our life or maybe just being confronted with God's word and realize, oh, this actually is a good gift. This is something for me to open up, celebrate, and enjoy. So I think we're challenged in today's world to reject gender, to blur the lines of gender, to ask questions about gender. We're confused. We live in a a time of great gender confusion. And so number one, I wanna let you know if you are confused, if you do have serious questions about gender, we love you. We're glad you're here. You are welcome here. And we want to sort things, these things out in community. Now, we have a view, right? And we've made a statement in our uh, constitution. You can look that up online. We have a, a doctrinal view of gender, of manhood and womanhood. We would stand by what I would call kind of a gracious, traditional view. And so we're going to assert that from the text as well today. But we just want to emphasize the gracious side of that. We love you. We understand that everybody struggles to understand doctrine in different areas. Um, We disagree on things, and we can have unity together in Christ as we try to work this out. So the biblical view is that gender is a gift from God. 
It's a steward that he gives us. It's a calling that he calls on us to live out based on our sex at birth. And I know that's become very controversial today, but that that would be the biblical view. We want to invite you into the biblical view. We understand that's not the cultural view, but we want to invite you to consider the biblical view. So it's a calling to be maintained and pursued and enjoyed based on your sex at birth. Our sex at birth gives us a gracious calling to steward, a calling to pursue. God gives us a role to play. Now, in this text, it gets a little confusing based on your translation, because in Greek, the word for man and woman is the same as husband and wife. And so you have to use context to understand. So some translations might say husband, wife, some say man, woman. In the ESV that I'm going to be reading today, it it kind of switches back and forth a little bit. So the idea here is that we most clearly understand our gender in the marriage relationship, and we are called on to have clear gender roles in the marriage relationship. And then we're also called on, we believe, in the church to have male leadership in the church, but we're also to steward and, and develop the women's gifts in the church as well. And so there are gender roles that are specific to church and to home, but these don't necessarily apply in the same way to every sphere of life, right? And so what we want to be thinking through is that lens of like, well, what does this look like in my home? What does this look like in the church? And then maybe there are second, third order effects elsewhere, but Paul doesn't really talk about that here, okay? It's not really his main emphasis in this text. So as we read this text, here's some questions to be thinking about. Do you think gender is outmoded or damaging to human flourishing? You might be there. That's okay. If that's, if that, if that's where you start, it's helpful to just kind of recognize, all right, this is, this is my starting point. A lot of us in today's world tend to think that gender is outmoded and it might be damaging to human flourishing. Secondly, do you think that gender is to be tolerated, but it's kind of embarrassing? I think that's where a lot of modern Christians find themselves. It's like, yeah, I know gender is a thing, but I don't really understand it, and really it embarrasses me, and I don't want to talk to my non-Christian friends about it. I think that's where a lot of us live, and so hopefully we can move past that one today. Number three, do you have old-fashioned views of gender that may be actually stricter than Scripture? We have to be careful of that as well. We're somewhat traditional in our views at this church, and so we might actually, sometimes some of us, be holding views that are more strict than what Scripture commands. So we all come at it from different standpoints. What I want to do is, as we read the text, I want to back up a little bit and read the last part of chapter 10, because it's going to give us context for now the new stuff we'll be studying in chapter 11. So I'm going to read, uh, starting in chapter 10, verse 31. It gives us the big picture here. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's the big goal. Uh, The London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, both of these great historic Protestant documents say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a really good kind of big picture goal to start with. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So here's a secondary principle. And churches today often live primarily on one of these principles or the other, right? The second principle is like, don't unnecessarily offend pagans. Like try to be as nice as possible so that they can hear the gospel and be saved, right? And in our modern churches, we tend to run hard after one or the other, right? We're all about the glory of God, his holiness, and we don't really care about being nice to people. Or we're all about being nice to people and we want to convince them to be saved, but maybe we start to slip on the glory of God. The scripture says, hold on to both of those things. We want to guard, protect, glorify, honor the holiness of God. And we want to be as nice as we can, not unnecessarily offend people. Say, hey, this is, this is who Jesus is. Have you heard the story of Jesus? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Do you, do you know about what he's done for you? So this is the both sides that Paul gives us. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So in all these things, I would just encourage you to find a godly friend that you respect who's following Jesus and try to follow them because this stuff gets confusing. We're like, man, I don't don't know how to apply all of this, but I see them. They love Jesus. They honor Jesus. They read the scriptures. I'm going to try to follow them. We sometimes talk about this as mentoring, but Paul says that's a good principle as well. So now we're into the text of the day. Verse two, look at verse two. It says, 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I'm ducking. Anybody throwing anything? Okay. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Okay. Just introducing the main principles. We're going to read more of these verses as we go on. Um, I'm going to pray that God would help us, and then I'll try to give you a little summary of of where we're headed. Let's pray. God, we need you. These are controversial things, um, and all of us come from different backgrounds. Lord, some of us come with very hard traditional views. Some of us come with very uh, hard progressive views. Some of us are not sure what to think. We pray that your Spirit would meet us here and that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that we'd come to appreciate you and your design and your plan for us. Um, Help us. Meet with us. Make this a a supernatural experience where we hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the Scripture, we believe that the Scripture speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus. We want to hear what he has to say to us in the Scripture. And so that's why we're opening it up and we're sitting at his feet. Again, just want to recognize we all come from different backgrounds. We don't believe we've got it all figured out, but we're trying to obey what he says here. And so what we see as we move through the text is that when you deal with difficult passages, uh, disputed passages, it's really helpful to emphasize things that are repeated a lot in Scripture. It's also helpful as kind of a Bible study method to look at what are the summary statements that we get in this passage. So our primary passage that we're going to be looking at is verses 2 through 16. In verses 2 through 16, we see this. Verse 2 says that, I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul is giving them a commendation. Now, again, remember, he's challenged them in a lot of different ways, right? He's asked them to change things they're doing. So he's not saying that they perfectly to the letter have obeyed everything. He's just saying there's a general direction of obedience that you're moving and I commend you for that. You're keeping some of the traditions. You're keeping these traditions that I've passed on to you. Now, he says then in verse 16, the very end of our passage, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul is kind of framing this whole discussion with, hey, I commend you for generally trying to to follow me. Everything I've passed on, you've tried to follow. Now I have to correct some details that you're getting wrong, but I appreciate your spirit of following, your, your spirit of obedience. And at the end, he says, don't be contentious, Let's not fight about this. Let's not be disagreeable about this. Let's, let's walk in unity together. So that's how Paul is framing it. And that's how I want to frame this as well. We might have disagreements, but we want to obey what the Scripture tells us. The other thing I want to say is that you're going to probably, well, not probably, but you might have different views than me on some of these subjects. And what I want to do is I want to press on you to obey the Scriptures first. So if you, if you struggle with what I'm saying, I want you to be asking yourself, What is the Scripture saying? What is Jesus saying to me? Obey the Scriptures first. Secondly, obey your conscience. Scriptures first, conscience second, preacher third, maybe, as long as I'm agreeing with what the Scripture says, right? I just want to clarify that up front. To the degree that I'm saying what the Scripture says, then you you follow what I'm saying. But you, you owe your allegiance to the Scriptures first, your conscience second. Now, what I want to say is, as he talks about head coverings, I believe this is a culturally specific application of a universal principle. Now, obey your conscience. If you feel called to wear a head covering, that's fine. Or not wear a head covering as a man, that's fine. Obey your conscience. But I think the principle that he's leading us to here is to maintain gender as a gift. I think that's the principle. Again, why do I say that? Well, because of the framing of this. He's giving kind of a a generalized framing of obey the general direction because it's never repeated and because we've got this this kind of uh, precedent of other places where we see the scripture give us very detailed cultural instructions and we just intuitively know that we can obey that in principle. So what are some of those other places? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us when we fast to oil our head and wash our face. Now, I believe he's giving us a principle there, right? He says, don't be all gloomy and depressed. So it's a principle of like, clean yourself up. 
a lot of us don't oil our heads. Some of you use oils in your daily bath rituals. Some of us do not. I don't generally put oil on my head. Not very often. I might put oil on my skin. I might put oil in a diffuser, but I don't put it on my head. Am I disobeying the scriptures if I fast without putting oil on my head? Well, I don't, I don't think so. I think the point is the general principle of clean yourself up, you know, be refreshed when you're fasting. Don't try to look gloomy. A similar passage would be greet each other with a holy kiss. Again, I, I don't kiss most of you, right? Like that's a, that's a difference between like maybe American or Western culture and Mediterranean culture or other Southern cultures. I don't you know, I'm not sure who kisses and who doesn't, but I know we don't really do it as much here as people do in other countries. And we would read that text and that one's repeated. This, this head covering thing's not repeated. The greet each other with a holy kiss is repeated multiple times. I think the principle is show affection. Body of Christ, show affection. But don't be weird and sexual about it, but show affection, right? That's the principle. And so, again, here, I think the principle is honor gender, honor modesty, women. And those are principles that are repeated multiple times throughout Scripture. And that's, that's how I understand this to be. But again, you obey the Scriptures, you obey your conscience, obey me, third, um, also, most of this, I mentioned this already, most of the stuff centers primarily around husband-wife relationship, secondarily around the principles we have of male leadership in the church. Um, okay, got a lot of other stuff I could say, but I got to move on. I'm trying to watch my timer. I went pretty long this morning. Okay, so we've got a three-point outline here. We're to celebrate gender as a gift, number one, because gender points us to God. He roots, us, roots it in the nature of God himself. Number two, gender comes before the fall. So gender is not a result of sin. Gender is a good gift from God before the fall. goes back to the creation story. Number three, gender is scientific. Gender is scientific, um, and by that I just mean like it exists in the scientific, empirical, observable world. We just see it in life, right? So number one, gender points us to God. Gender points us to God. We see this in verses three through six. Husband and wife relationships point us to who God is. As I said, I think this is primarily husband and wife, but then it has you know, broader application beyond that. Uh, gender is a gift. It's a calling. It's an assigned part that we play in God's big story. And what we're going to see here in the text is that just as Jesus is co-equal with the Father, Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we think they are one God, but three persons that play different roles So just as Jesus is equal with the Father, and yet he submits to the Father's will, in the same way, it's not demeaning for a wife to submit to a husband or to honor her husband as having a special role. Again, I know that's controversial in our world, but he's going to be saying here, yeah, just think about the Godhead. There's a distinction of relationships in the Godhead, just like there's a distinction of relationships between man and wife. Ephesians 5 says a very similar thing talking about marriage. It says in Ephesians 5 that when a husband and wife play different roles, sacrificial love and a esteeming respect, that then a picture of God is seen, a picture of the gospel is seen in a marriage. And so he's saying a very similar thing here, talking about headship. Headship generally stands for direction, leadership, or authority. Verse 3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he talks about these headship relationships. And at one level, it's really controversial to say that a head of a wife is a husband, right? We know that's controversial, and that's a big part of what I think he's teaching here and reaffirming here. But I think it's most controversial that we would say our head is Christ, Like, that's really the problem that we have as modern people. And that's really the problem they had as ancient people. To allow God, to allow Jesus to be your head, to allow anyone to tell us what to do on any subject, I think that's that's really the issue. Are we willing to let God be God, to let him lead us, to submit to him, to honor him as head? That's the big question. And so now Paul's saying that that's really the issue. Jesus is your head, men. But more than that, Jesus submits to the Father, and yet they're equal. So, so it's, it's got to be okay, right? There's, there's got to be a sense in which we can submit to each other and still uh, point to God and still not be demeaning 
of ourselves. We can somehow be equal, but also have this submission relationship. And when we do that, we're pointing to God. I want to recommend some resources. A book that I've recommended a lot about the Trinity is called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. If you found the Trinity to be a hard to understand subject, which I think most of us are, this one's really helpful, Rooting It in Love. It's a relationship of love. And that's how in our marriage relationships or in our brother-sister relationships, we reveal that love of the Trinity as well. Another one that gets into some of the debates about the Trinity and how it relates to man-woman relationships is called Trinitarian Theology. It's a little bit more for the academic ones out there. Those of you that are reading the theological blogs and the, the debates on ERAS and EFS, that, that's, this one's for you, okay? But the rest of you read Delighting in the Trinity. But those are really helpful applications of like, man, the more I understand God, the more I can kind of glory in who he is. And that allows me to find some joy in playing the role that he's assigned to me. So she, uh, he says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, uh, with his head covered, excuse me, dishonors his head. So what does that mean? He doesn't give us a lot of explanation here. Paul spends most of his time talking about the women, frankly, in this text. But here he quickly just affirms, I don't want the, the men to pray and prophesy with their heads covered. Now, culturally, that was the norm in their society. Culturally, Romans and Jews prayed and prophesied with their heads covered. And so I believe because of kind of the direction of everything else he's saying here and the other things he said about the role that Christ, our head, plays in the rest of the New Testament, what he's saying here is that if a man prays and prophesies like every other religion, and comes to God and then covers his head, that that man is telling the wrong story because Jesus is our covering. Jesus is the one that brings us to God. And so because of the gospel, because of Jesus being the one that brings us to God, men, I don't want you to worship like everybody else. I want you to worship differently. And it seems like, again, his commendation, I appreciate that you're, you're doing what I've asked you to do. Probably they were doing it. They were not covering their heads. And he's like, that's great. Uh, man, it, it dishonors your head, Christ, if you come and pray with, the, with a physical covering over your head. But then he says, but women, I don't want you to worship like that. I want you to conform to the gender roles of the culture. And this is where it gets really confusing, right? He's saying, men, I want you to violate the norms of culture so you can tell a different story in church. And then women, I actually want you to still cover your head. That's the norm. All the women would have covered their head. They wouldn't have just covered their head in worship like the men often did in Jewish and Roman custom. They would have covered their head every time they were in public. So I think the parallel when we look at the women is kind of like, women, um, that's great if you want to come and be on the prayer team or lead worship for us, but uh, we really don't want you to wear a bikini when you're doing that. And that's that's kind of the the similarity culturally. Like, we, we want you to be modest, okay? So I was thinking of another weird relationship. This is, so just pardon me. I I remember as a little boy being told, maybe I was four, maybe I was five, that it was okay for boys to not wear a shirt. You know, this kind of things you explain to little kids. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. And I basically spent my entire childhood without a shirt on, okay? That was just a difference between boys and girls. I could not wear a shirt and it was okay. I would eat dinner with no shirt. I was talking to one of my friends. He was like, oh, my mom's rule is we had to wear shirts at the dinner table. But then we could run around all day without our shirts on. Um, And so I just never wore a shirt. And I was just told that's the difference between men and women. And that was something I really enjoyed, right? Um, So so again, try to use a different cultural lens. What if Paul was saying, okay, when the men are leading in the worship service, we we want the men to be shirtless, right? Because it's going to tell a story about how you just can come to God without any covering, right? And that's how you tell the gospel story. But we want the women still wear shirts, okay? That's kind of what he's doing here. He's making a gender distinction. We want, to, we want to maintain gender. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to freak people out. There's the difference between male and female. And that, that's what he's saying. He's kind of simultaneously saying, men, do this unusual thing. Women, no, keep, keep doing the normal thing because there is still gender distinction. Um, So gender points us to God, to the difference in relationships within the Godhead. Verse five, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. So he's saying, men, when you're in church, you're telling a story about God. Women, again, we think it's primarily husbands and wives. 
when you're in church, you're telling a story about your husband. So if you're dressing in a way that looks like, in their day, a prostitute or a lesbian, you're dishonoring your head, your husband. So there's a modesty issue in play here. And Paul is affirming that and saying, that's okay. It's okay for the woman's primary role to be supporting her husband and then the husband's primary role to be telling the story about who God is. That's okay. Now, the amazing thing is both the men and the women were praying and prophesying in church, right? So we need to look at ourselves as more conservative churches and say, okay, are we over-limiting women's participation in church? We would affirm, based on this text, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, we, we still affirm that we believe that we should only have men serving as, as pastors and elders. We affirm that. Not everybody agrees with that, but that's what we affirm biblically. We would say that's, that's in the text, but there's something beyond that taking place here of praying and prophesying in church. Now, let me get to a little side issue. You said, it would be the same as if her head were shaven. Verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should just cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So he's saying there are these other signals in culture of, of being an adulteress, of being a prostitute, of being a lesbian. And since you wouldn't do those signals, then don't do this other signal that in culture, in that culture, signals that you're not honoring your husband. So again, this is where I think he's rooting it culturally and saying, there's this super cultural thing of gender is good and it points us to God, but there's cultural applications of it. So the question for us to ask is, what are the cultural ways that you would honor the leaders of the church, but more specifically, the the men in your own family? How would I honor my husband and how would I maintain gender distinctions for the glory of God? And tell God, God, I believe it's good. I believe gender is your idea and that's a good thing. How can we honor those things? But do so in a way that doesn't add necessary or unnecessary cultural offense. I grabbed a picture of a job interview here. I heard one pastor just this week preaching on this. He says, they're just kind of, again, culturally normal ways that we could understand this. Like you wouldn't go to a job interview in a bathing suit, right? You wouldn't go to a job interview in your dirtiest work clothes. You'd probably go to a job interview with a nice outfit, an outfit appropriate to the kind of job that you're interviewing for, right? So there are ways that we do this in our culture as well. Paul's saying, don't add unnecessary offense. Don't distract people. Try to tell the story that you're trying to tell. But again, we have women and men both praying and prophesying in church. What what does that mean? What does it mean for men and women to both participate in church? Um, prayer, I think we all know what prayer is, right? Prayer is talking to God. Uh, you can pray to God spontaneously. Uh, we can pray to God through music, right? Um, or you can pray to God scripted prayers. And so I think there are a lot of different ways we can pray. We all understand what that means. And we generally have men and women praying in our church uh, the primary place it really takes place the most is in our small groups, right? So we have probably a more scripted, less leaders leading things in the public worship service. And then small groups, we've got all kinds of participation. But what does prophesy mean? What is, what is prophecy? Anybody know what prophesy means? I think it's basic level, it means to tell the truth. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the ones that would also sometimes predict the future. And this would certify that God was supernaturally speaking through them, and they became the authors of the scriptures. And so an Old Testament prophet is more like a New Testament apostle. But the word uh, prophet in the New Testament is usually used in a more kind of everyday sense of just telling truth. And by the way, when you read the Old Testament prophets, most of what they say is just truth-telling. There's very little actual predictable stuff, you know, prediction taking place. Most of it's just speaking truth from God. And so that part of it's carried forward in the New Testament. And we have this idea that Christians should just be truth tellers. We should all be speaking the truth to each other. We might say spirit-led encouragement. So are you practicing spirit-led encouragement? I know many men and women in the body of Christ speak the truth to me. They speak scripture to me. They pray for me. That's the kind of body life that Paul's describing here. That men and women are all to be participating, to be speaking up, to be praying, to, to be talking to one another, to be speaking the truth of God to one another. Now, again, that, that doesn't mean we don't have an office like pastor or elder. We still believe we have that office. We still believe, according to Scripture, it's, it's limited to men. 
But he's saying, beyond that, you should just all be speaking the truth to each other all the time. That should just be happening constantly. And so we want to encourage that. Um, And so as we think about this, one of the things that I realized, just thinking this through, is that in a context where we have male leadership, and on top of that, most of the informal pray and prophesy, you know, informal prayer and truth-telling takes place in small groups, we could begin to have an atmosphere where women don't know how much we value them. So I just want you to know, women, that we value you. We need you to speak truth to us. We need you to pray and pray for us. We, we need you. You're valuable. So, so I want you to hear that and to know that and that that is biblical. And so even though we may say, no, we, we believe that the office of elder and pastor is limited to men at the same time, we want to affirm with the Apostle Paul, but we need you to be praying and prophesying in our life. We need you so much to build up the body of Christ. And I want to thank you for the way that you do that. Thank you for the faithful women of Grace Bible Church who, who regularly do that, who regularly speak truth, or who are unafraid to, to speak up when they see something and unafraid to encourage in the name of Jesus. So, so thank you for that. I, I get to hear from the women of our church regularly. I'm married to one of the women of our church, so that's a blessing. Um, I get to hear from her in my life, but also hear from many other women in the, in the church regularly. We do a thing for my sermon preparation almost every week. A lot of times just it gets canceled because of schedule conflicts, but try to every week preach my sermon for, for staff and interns and ministry partners at the church. And so I get a lot of feedback from women of the church just in preparing for my sermon. That's really helpful for me week after week. Uh, also this week, I took the extra time to speak to seven different ladies that are involved in full-time ministry at different churches. Uh, so I hear a lot from the women at our church, but I wanted to hear from some other friends at, at sister churches and in like ministries. And kind of the overwhelming thing that I heard again and again is, if I feel called to ministry and if I feel called to evangelism and to encouraging others in the ministry, that doesn't mean I want to take your job as the pastor of the church. That was one thing I heard from a lot of the women. The other thing that I realized as I talked to all of them is that it doesn't mean that we can't encourage and build up women in their gifts if we believe in male leadership, right? And so that's one of the things I've, I've just felt a renewed commitment to of, of we want to encourage you and we want to encourage your gifts and let you know we need your gifts and we need you to encourage other brothers and sisters in the gospel. In our statement on women in ministry in our constitution, we say this, we encourage women to share their spiritual insights with men and women. Uh, we, we need you. We need your spiritual insights. We need you to encourage us in the Lord. We're, we're not going to change, you know, we're not going to start having women pastors. We're not going to start having women elders. We're, we're still committed to our view on that, but we need you. We need you to speak up. We need you to exhort. We need you to encourage. We need you to challenge. We need you to speak truth in the body of Christ, and we're thankful for you. So just a final exhortation from 1 Corinthians. Paul says this later in 1 Corinthians 15. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. We need you. We are grateful for you. Thank you for your ministry. So Paul starts off saying, well, look at the, look at the Trinity. Look at the Father and the Son. Look at the way that the Son submits to the Father, even though the Father and the Son are equal. In the same way, we can have these kinds of relationships in the body of Christ. And he's going to continue to kind of tease this out by looking back to creation before the fall. So the second point is that gender comes before the fall. Verses 7 through 12, we see that gender comes before the fall. Can we go to that next slide? I'm going to make sure I'm on the right verses. There it is, 7 through 12. Okay. In verses 7 through 12, we see both simultaneously that there's difference and sameness. Difference and sameness. So verses 11 and 12 get at the sameness that we have as we're all human beings, right? We're all made in the image of God. But then 7 through 10 talk about the difference. And so again, in English, some of this sounds stronger than we would like it to culturally. But what he's saying is that simultaneously, we are both the same and we're different. And one of the things I want to say as well, as just an aside, is our primary calling is to obey Jesus, right? So there's this like, central unity that we all have as human beings that are sinners that need a savior. And he calls us to follow him and trust him. 
And then there's this gender calling in addition to that, the secondary to that. So in verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Okay, so he's talking about this unique relationship the man has to God. But woman is the glory of man. So again, this can sound upsetting if you think he's saying, and she doesn't actually have the image of God. He's not saying that, right? So many other places he's clarified this. I would argue that the reason he's saying this is that they already understand it. So they already understand that men and women are both made in the image of God. And that's why he's kind of pulling them back a little bit and saying, but we we still want some gender distinctions. They're running forward with we're totally equal in Christ, right? Galatians 3.28 says there is now no male or female in Christ. We're totally equal. We're on the same ground, right? There's no like uh, lesser than in the body of Christ. And Paul's preached that in many other places. He's affirmed that in many other places. We also see in Genesis 1, we're made male and female. We, we both have the image of God. So he's not saying that women don't have the image of God. He's saying there's a relationship dynamic here. So man glorifies God, and then he says woman glorifies man. Now, uh, one of the really helpful gender studies I've done over the years is a guy named Emerson Egerix. He wrote a book called Love and Respect, really good at just dividing up all the New Testament commands and saying, you know what? Uh, I've said this many times before from the pulpit. Women are never, never told to love their husbands. Isn't that like a weight off your shoulder, ladies? You're just like, ah, I don't have to love my husband. Woo! <laughs> yeah, women are never commanded to love their husbands. They're commanded to esteem and respect their husbands. Submit, that's the hardest word. Submit is really a, like a um, military word. It means to, to come other, under the tactics, support the tactics and the mission of your husband, right? So Sam Andriotis is another teacher that I've really appreciated. His, uh, his book is called Engendered. And in this book, he gives kind of a basic definition of manhood and womanhood. He says manhood uh, would be sacrificial leadership for others. And he says, uh, womanhood would be the kind of loving advancement of the close men in her life. And what Andriades does a good job of distinguishing is that this is for the close men and the close women in your life. Again, this is not, you don't owe your femininity to every man and men don't own their manhood to every woman, right? God calls us to particular relationships, particular family relationships where this is seen most clearly. And so here, kind of in keeping with the husbands, sacrificially love your wives, wives, honor and respect your husbands. There's kind of a, a difference there in calling. He says, yeah, the woman is, is made to glorify the man, which again, sounds, sounds crazy, right? Sounds selfish, but we could argue if we were living uh, in ancient cultures that it sounds really crazy that a man is supposed to sacrificially and tenderly love his wife. That also sounds crazy. We're just this side of Christianity. So that that now sounds normal, right? On this side of Christendom and on this side of Christianity, unconditional love and sacrifice from a man sounds perfectly reasonable. And yet unconditional respect and glorying and advancing your husband seems too far. I, I would argue that the gospel actually calls both sexes sacrificially care for the other in unique ways. So he says, one is the glory of man. Verse eight, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's a really strange sidebar there. Because of the angels, he just throws that out. Uh, We think what he's talking about is there is this supernatural war that's taking place. When we are gathering to worship God, we're engaged in in supernatural war. So he's like, be careful here. This is more than just a social setting. We're engaged in the supernatural. The supernatural realm is a part of this. We don't completely understand how all that works tactically, but he's saying, be aware that even angels are involved in this process. And he's describing the creation account where woman was designed to help man. Again, this was before sin. If you read the creation account, it is amazing. Man uh, has all the animals marched before him, and he names them, and he sees that they all have pairs. They've all got helpers, but he doesn't have a helper, right? God is showing him his need, and God puts him to sleep, and then he takes the woman out of his side. It's this beautiful picture of the woman that the man needs. And the word 
helper, the Hebrew word ezer, is a word that's used repeatedly of God as a rescuer, as a hero who's helping us. So again, women, we need you. We need you. It's not a, it's not a less than issue. This is an issue of need. Sometimes it's referred to as complementarianism. That is that we, we complement each other. We're different, but we help each other. And that's the picture that he's painting here. Again, before the fall, before sin entered in. And then he says, but there's also sameness. sameness. In verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. He's saying, remember, it all comes from God. So there's still equality as well. Man's not better than woman. Woman's not better than man, right? This is not a war. The sexes are not to be in competition with one another, but to be complementing, to be helping and serving one another. I grabbed a, a picture of Adam and Eve fleeing the garden. I joked earlier, it's, it's kind of funny that the angel guarding Eden is wearing a Roman centurion uniform, but I just thought it was a cool picture. So here you've got them fleeing out, right? So sin comes in, and when sin comes in, Adam and Eve choose to live apart from God's instructions. Adam and Eve say, we'd rather be our own gods. We'd rather have that freedom and take the blessings of creation, but reject a relationship and love and obedience with God. And when that happens, they've plunged the world into death and brokenness. And then curses come in in Genesis chapter 3. So God says, there's going to be curses on child rearing. There's going to be curses on work and working the ground. There's even going to be a curse on the male-female relationship. And all those curses come after the fall. But all of those things that are cursed were good before the fall. And so we just have to look back in time that gender came before the fall. And this plan for this strong helper to help the man, that plan came before the fall. God had that in place before sin cursed and broke everything. So gender distinction is not a result of the fall. Gender distinction is actually part of God's good design. It comes before the fall. So again, we should see it as a gift. Another thing that's really interesting here, and this is uh, something that Sam Andriotis talks a lot about in Engendered, is that this verse that says in verse 11, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, is uh, there is no word independent in the Greek. That's something that the translators give to us to help us to make sense of it. But literally in the Greek, it says, woman is not without man, and man is not without woman. I think it's interesting. This is why Andriotis really emphasizes, okay, we're going to really most understand this in our relationship with those that are close to us. With husband and wife primarily is the main emphasis of the scriptures, but also brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. There's a relational dynamic in which we really understand this and where we're really serving those we love. Again, masculinely sacrificing, sacrificial servant leadership, femininely, this kind of advancing, glorifying, lifting up someone, bringing them rest, helping them to improve. So there's a relational dynamic in which this is really understood. Our manhood, our womanhood seems to not fully exist without the other. They exist in in tension with one another. Claire Smith is a female theologian, and one of our elders sent this to me this week. She wrote this, one of the fallacies of modern feminist ideology is that for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. That, that's, that's a fallacy. You don't have to do the same thing to be equal. She goes on and says, but you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having inferiority and superiority of dignity or value. Now, this is just a short poll I want to do, but don't raise your hands, okay? How many of you are smarter or superior to your boss? A lot of you, right? But they can still be your boss. They can still be in authority over you. I, I forgot to tell people not to raise their hands, and a, a bunch of the guys that worked for me raised their hands earlier. So. so I'm trying to be more careful this time. But you know that you can have a boss that's still your boss. They're still in authority over you, even though you're smarter than them, or you might be a, a superior to them in many ways. You might have more skills than them in many areas, but it doesn't, the boss-servant relationship or the employee-employer relationship, that's not, that's not saying one person's better 
than the other. And just in the same way, submission and leadership in a relationship or in a family or in a church doesn't, doesn't mean one person's better or superior. That's not what it's saying at all. It's a role that God asks us to play. So I think the number one area to apply this is in marriage. We want to have healthy marriages. Husbands, sacrificially love and serve your wives. That's going to go a long way in fixing the problems. The problem is often either uh, being overly dominant or being totally passive, right? The scripture condemns both of those. Scripture is not saying lord it over your wife, and the scripture is not saying be a passive couch potato. It says be a proactive, sacrificial servant leader. That is what is going to help the women in your life to flourish. And then wives, you're called on to respect, to lift up, again, unconditionally. Your husbands don't always deserve your respect. As a matter of fact, maybe they often don't deserve your respect. But by grace, because Jesus has saved you by grace, you're going to respect your husband by grace. You're going to respect the men that God has put in your life. You're going to respect your little boys and help raise them to be successful. These, these same things work in all of our different relationships. I also think it's important to remember that we can lean into these things even as singles. So even, even if you're single, this is a calling to fulfill, a stewardship to fulfill. Of course, it looks different if you don't have a husband or a wife, but, but you are to give these gifts to the close men and the close women uh, in your life to support and encourage them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, we saw that a few months back, Paul was pretty clear that, that either you're called to heterosexual marriage or you're called to celibacy, right? Those are, those are the two options in which these things will be played out. Um, number three, if you've struggled with same-sex attraction, if you've struggled with transgender area uh, issues, uh, gender dysphoria, that's feeling disconnected from the gender that you were assigned biologically at birth, just know that God loves you and all of us struggle. So I just really want you to understand that all human beings struggle. Really, all human beings have some level of gender dysphoria. All human beings have human dysphoria. We, we struggle to be the human that God has made us to be. And our, our, our kind of selfish desires or our human fleshly desires are often in conflict with the desire to make Jesus preeminent in our lives. So, so all people are strugglers. And to be a Christian is to say, I don't have it together. I need Jesus' help. Because I see that Jesus died for me, now I'm going to try to obey him. But that doesn't mean it's like a snap of the finger and you automatically see everything he asks you to do is easy. We're all struggling with different things that God has commanded us to do. So, so know that, that we love you. Know that we want to help you. Know that if you're struggling, particularly in these areas, we want to encourage you best we can and help you to follow Jesus. But also know that we're, we're struggling as well, right? It, those of us that don't struggle maybe with same-sex attraction or transgender issues, that doesn't mean we don't struggle, right? We're all struggling with something. We're all we're all carrying a burden. So don't make your struggle more important than other people's struggles. Honor that we all have different struggles. And our, our statement on human sexuality in our constitution, and you can read this online, we say it this way, the leaders of Grace Bible Church are grieved that some people feel less welcomed by churches than others. We affirm that all people need God's grace, regardless of sexual desires. All humans struggle with a variety of desires, Following Jesus regularly entails resisting human desires. We're a community seeking to submit our competing desires to our ultimate desire, which is union with Christ. We believe that it is dehumanizing to compel anyone to found his or her identity on sexual desires or gender preference. And that, that would go with anything. We believe it's dehumanizing to say, you have this desire for something that God says is out of bounds. You should build your whole identity around it. We believe that's actually dehumanizing. That's destructive. As Peter says, the passions of the flesh wage war on our souls. So we understand it's, it hurts. We understand it's hard. We understand it's difficult, but we want to help you to find greater joy in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says it this way, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So two important truths here. God is gracious and he'll give you a way of escape. 
Ask him for help. Ask your friends for help. Let us be community together as we struggle together. But he also says that you'll be able to endure it. And that verse always kind of offended me because I wanted the way of escape to mean I never struggle again. How about you? That's what I want it to mean. I want the way of escape to mean I'll never struggle another day in my life and I'll be done with temptation forever. But he's saying the way of escape is the doorway to endurance. You'll continue to be able to endure faithfully through temptation. And then he ends with this. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Chris said this at one point in the, uh, during the worship time. He said that the only reason we break any of the Ten Commandments is because we've already broken the first, right? We haven't made God our only God. We've made our pet sin or our desire or our career or whatever else it might be into our Savior. Flee from idolatry. Okay, last point is that gender is scientific. Gender is scientific. And he makes some kind of funny statements again here that in the English sound weird. I just think it's really healthy when we're reading the scripture to say, man, that was weird, right? Like it's good to read something and say that, that sounded off to me. But I think as we kind of look at it, we can make sense of it here. And so let me just read the text. He says, in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, we'll start with the word covering. That's a different word from what he's used throughout the whole text, right? He's been talking about some kind of shawl or hat or something to cover your head. And now he's switched to the word wrap, robe. So he's talking more about the woman's long hair is given to her as like this glory that she's wrapped in, right? It's like a queenly robe that God has, has just built women with. I grabbed a picture here of a robe that Queen Elizabeth II wore. I guess you should say a dress. It's a fancy dress that Queen Elizabeth II wore. And I think it's helpful to think about how God built men and women. What Paul is saying here is not necessarily about haircuts. He's saying, doesn't nature itself teach us something different about men and women when we just look at their heads, right? Let me summarize it for you. Women are prettier than men, okay? That's like the basic foundational principle here. And a lot of times it shows up with our hair. As I look across the room here, there's a lot less male hair in the room than female hair. Some of you, like me, are getting worse and worse at growing hair on the top of your head, right? It's just moving farther and farther back. Some of you, it's gone completely. That's just like a basic biological distinction. So I don't think Paul's really getting into the the weeds of of haircut length, right? Because Paul actually took some vows where he would let his hair grow long and then cut it off. The Jews had vows like that. So it's not saying that it's always evil for a man to not have a buzz, right? Like that's not That's not really where he's going. He's just like, doesn't nature show us men and women are different? Come on, women have pretty long hair. They have like this beautiful robe that God's built into the way they're made. Women are just more beautiful than men are. And that's okay to say, women, you're beautiful. Even if you've never felt beautiful, you're beautiful. God has made you beautiful. That's part of the glory of being a woman. That's like how he's designed you. It's one of the general differences. Now, When we think about general biological differences, it's really fun to study. And I encourage you to study it. There really are, modern people often don't know this, men and women are actually biologically different. (laughs) Testosterone changes things. Testosterone actually damages the brain. Women love to hear this one. It It burns the connectors in the corpus callosum. So you've got this connector between the halves of the brain And a lot of scientists think this is why men seem to be more segmented in their thinking and women seem to be more holistic. Like testosterone literally burns the brain in the womb. Isn't that great? Men are all brain damaged. (laughs) And so there's all kinds of stuff like that that you can study, right? Problem is they're, they're all distributed on a bell curve, right? So like I'm way more holistic of a thinker than the average man. Does that mean I'm a woman? Well, no, I'm still a man, right? I'm way more verbal than the average man. There's all kinds of tests that show that women have higher verbal scores than men on all, you know, different kinds of tests. That doesn't mean that a man that can talk a lot like automatically switches into the female category, right? And so 
this is where gender gets kind of tricky. We can make these general observations, right? Like one that I love, because I've been a skinny guy my whole life, is I'm probably stronger than all the women in the, in the room, right? Even though I'm a skinny dude. Now, a couple of you might be competitive female weightlifters, and you might be stronger than me, but most of you I'm stronger than, right? They're just general differences. And then there's some people that like poke outside of that. So most of us live within the bell curve. We're kind of generally stereotypical male or female. And then we might have a couple of traits that like kind of push outside the norm, right? You might be different in this area or different in that area. That doesn't mean you're not a man. It doesn't mean you're not a woman. Does that make sense? God has given us a design and we want to lean into it and we want to observe in the Proverbs, we're repeatedly told to observe nature, to think about it, to ponder God's good design, but we don't want to absolutize it. I think that's where we get a little confused. We can go down the rabbit hole, and then we get backed into a corner of like, well, I don't even know what manhood and womanhood is anymore, right? Like if those average differences aren't always there, then what does that mean? I just think God gives us a general design, and then those, those things are worked out in relationship. So it's good to, it's good to honor. There's a general difference. There's a difference in how people are made. So two simple ones are, you know, baldness versus long hair. Again, not always true. Some men have long, glorious hair. Some women struggle with baldness. But generally, God's made the women with more hair than the men. That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. Another one that I think is real common is if you look at the upper body of, of men and women, um, women seem to be designed biologically to nurture, right? I won't go into the details. It'll embarrass me. But... Women are biologically more nurturing than men are. Men seem to be designed to throw things and break things, right? (laughs) So again, just general differences. It doesn't mean every man throws things all the time and breaks things, right? Like, but they're just these differences in how we're made. And I think it's helpful to look at them, to think about them. Paul's just saying, hey, this is part of it. And and because of that, we, we want to maintain these, these gender distinctions as a good gift from God. We can enjoy them. We can celebrate them, but we don't want to make them absolute, right? Again, in our church, we would say primarily the male-female roles are to be maintained as uh, important in the home and in the church relationships. But beyond that, that's kind of got to be worked out case by case. So we are to reject homosexuality and transgenderism as we would say as unscientific, as unnatural. To use the word he uses here, doesn't nature itself say that this is this way and this is that way? Romans 1, Paul uses the same language. He says, engaging in homosexuality or transgenderism is is a rejection of nature. It's a rejection of what we sometimes refer to as natural law. And so Paul is often rooting things in the way God's made things, the way science works, things you can just observe in biology. And we can say, yeah, that's, that's a part of it as well. But in the end, we obey God, not because of natural law, but because of special revelation. We, we want to live in concert with biology and with science, but, but we've all seen sometimes people can worship science. Sometimes science can be manipulated. We want to be like the wise man from the Proverbs that makes observations, that listens to data, that pays attention to how things work. But ultimately, we want to listen to God's special revelation. He's given us his rules of how to live, but more than that, he's given us himself. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave himself as a willing sacrifice to lovingly save us from sin and from death. So when we think about the differences in gender, I would say this. We want to kind of walk a tightrope of being willing to honor it and embrace it as a gift, but not to be unnecessarily weird, okay? So Paul hits this a lot in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10, and 1 Corinthians 14. It's been a theme of do the best you can to build bridges with other people and not be unnecessarily weird. But on the other side of that, when God tells you to do something, we got to do it. We got to obey him. So don't be unnecessarily weird, right? Try to build bridges with our culture as much as we can, but no, bad news on this issue our culture kind of hates us. And we just have to recognize sometimes there are spots where we just got to be weird. And that, I, that drives me crazy, right? My generation, we, we all thought we were going to build cool churches that weren't weird. And you know what? Here we are in history where we're all weird now, you know? <laughs> to follow Jesus is to be weird. And we just have to own that. We have to be okay with that. Don't be unnecessarily weird, but be willing to be faithful 
And if that means you're weird, then you're weird. Um, Live according to the way that God has made the world. That's science, observation, wisdom. But also live according to the good news that Jesus loves you and has forgiven you. So we'll wrap up conclusion here, thinking about gender as a gift. The whole metaphor that he's come back to again and again is is covering, um, headship. He's talked about how this is displayed in different ways. He talked about the robe that the one wraps herself in. And so I just want to end with this picture that the New Testament hits a lot of times, and that, that that is all of us have an inherent shame, an inherent, as I said it earlier, human dysphoria, not just gender dysphoria, but human dysphoria. We're broken. We're shameful. And the picture again and again in the New Testament is that Jesus wraps us in his robe of righteousness. Jesus loves you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to run to him. You can come to him because he, he cloaks you in his robe of righteousness. And Isaiah predicted this everlasting covenant that would come. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God because he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We can all disagree on the application of these things, but I think the number one thing for us to to end on is that all of us live outside of paradise, but Jesus has invited us back in through his work, through his grace, by, by loving you, by clothing you in his righteousness. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us to both difficult things, but also beautiful things. And we pray that you'd help us to be faithful. Help us to live out this truth in our particular relationships, in our church relationships, in our families. Help us to do it in a gracious way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.